0: SECTION 25 OF THE SCIENCE HISTORY OF THE UNIVERSE VOLUME 5 THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN FOR MORE INFORMATION OR TO VOLUNTEER PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG RECORDING BY WARREN COTTY GURNEY, ILLINOIS THE SCIENCE HISTORY OF THE UNIVERSE VOLUME 5 EDITED BY FRANCIS ROLT WHEELER BIOLOGY CHAPTER 15 HEREDITY, PART 2 Much attention has in recent years been given to the experimental study of variation and heredity. These experiments are of interest in connection with Mendel's law, a law so important in the science of biology that Professor Bateson has written of it, quote, The experiments which led to this advance in knowledge are worthy to rank with those that laid the foundation of the atomic laws of chemistry, end quote. The discoverer of this law was Gregor Johann Mendel 1822 to 1884 an augustinian monk he was a man of varied interest and in his gardens performed many hybridization experiments on plants in 1866 he published a paper giving the results of his experiments entitled experiments in plant hybridization this paper did not attract much attention at the time probably because of the enthusiasm and the controversy evoked by the natural selection theory and lay practically unknown in the proceedings of the natural history society of brune for over thirty years a revival of interest in the experimental study of variation and heredity at about the beginning of the present century led to the rediscovery of the Mendelian principles of heredity by several botanists working separately in about that time bateson brought into prominence mendel's work and by a long series of experiments confirmed and extended it to gain an idea of the scope of these principles one cannot do better than turn to mendel's own account of his experiments punnett's mendelism and Thomson's heredity give such an account and from these sources the following statements have largely been taken in the selection of a plant for experiment mendel recognized that two conditions must be fulfilled in the first place, the plant must possess differentiating characters, and secondly, the hybrids must be protected from the influence of foreign pollen during the flowering period. In the edible pea, Mendel found an almost ideal plant to work with. The separate flowers are self-fertilizing, while complications from insect interference are practically non-existent. As is well known, there are numerous varieties of the eating pea, exhibiting characters to which they breed true in some varieties the seed color is yellow while in others it is green in some varieties the seeds are round and smooth when ripe in others they are wrinkled some peas have purple others have pure white flowers some peas again when grown under ordinary conditions attain to a height of six to seven feet while others are dwarfs which do not exceed one and a half to two feet Mendel selected a certain number of such differentiating characters and investigated their inheritance separately for each character. Thus, in one series of experiments, he concentrated his attention on the heights of the plants. Crosses were made between tall and dwarf varieties, which previous experience had shown to come true to type with regard to these characters. It mattered not which was the pollen-producing and which was the seed-bearing plant. In every case, the result was the same tall plants resulted from the cross. For this reason, Mendel applied the terms dominant and recessive to the tall and dwarf habits, respectively. In the next generation, the cross-bred plants, products of dominant and recessive, or recessive and dominant, but all apparently like dominant, were allowed to fertilize themselves, with the result that their offspring exhibited the two original forms on the average three dominants to one recessive out of one thousand and sixty-four plants seven hundred and eighty-seven were tall two hundred seventy-seven were dwarfs when these recessive dwarfs were allowed to fertilize themselves they gave rise to recessive dwarfs only for any number of generations the recessive character bred true when the dominants, on the other hand were allowed to fertilize themselves they produced one-third of pure dominance producing dominance only when self-fertilized and two-thirds of crossbred dominance, which on self-fertilization again gave rise to a mixture of dominance and recessives in the proportion of three to one. If, in an experiment with mice, a gray house mouse is crossed with a white mouse, the offspring are all gray. Grayness is dominant. Albinism is recessive. The gray hybrids are inbred. Their offspring are gray and white in the proportion of three to one. If these whites are inbred, they show themselves pure, for they produce whites only for subsequent generations. But when the grays are inbred, they show themselves of two kinds, for one third of them produce only grays, which go on producing grays, while the other two thirds, apparently the same, produce both grays and whites, and so it goes on. In his exceedingly clear exposition of Mendelism, 1905, R. C. Punnett states the result thus. Quote, wherever there occurs a pair of differentiating characters of which one is dominant to the other, three possibilities exist. There are recessives, which always breed true to the recessive character. There are dominants which breed true to the dominant character and are therefore pure. And thirdly, there are dominants which may be called impure and which, on self fertilization or inbreeding where the sexes are separate, Give both dominant and recessive forms in the fixed proportion of three of the former to one of the latter. End quote. To explain such phenomena, Mendel suggested that the hybrid produces in equal numbers two kinds of germ cells, two kinds of egg cells or two kinds of pollen grains. That there is, in the developing reproductive organ, a segregation of germ cells into two equal camps, one camp with the potential quality of tallness. The other camp with the potential quality of dwarfness thus if there are six ovules three contain in their egg cell the primary constituent corresponding to tallness and three contain the primary constituent corresponding to dwarfness each of these is pollinated by a pollen grain which by hypothesis contains the potential quality of tallness or of dwarfness and if the two kinds of pollen grains are present in equal numbers each ovule has an equal chance of being fertilized by a pollen grain with a potential quality of tallness, or by a pollen grain with a potential quality of dwarfness. Therefore the result must be a set of offspring partly dominant and partly recessive in the proportions of 3 to 1. Mendel discovered an important set of facts, and he also suggested a theoretical interpretation, the theory of gametic segregation. As Batson says, quote, the essential part of the discovery is the evidence that the germ cells or gametes produced by cross-bred organisms may in respect of given characters be of the pure parental types and consequently incapable of transmitting the opposite character that when such pure similar gametes of opposite sexes are united in fertilization the individuals so formed and their posterity are free from all taint of the cross that there may be in short Perfect or almost perfect discontinuity between these germs in respect of one of each pair of opposite characters. End quote. This law of the segregation of gametes accords well with the experimental and observed phenomena of heredity. But this brings up the question is there any known process by which such a segregation could be brought about during the history of the germ cells? Quote, is it, says Thompson, enough simply to say that the germ cells are little living unities with an organization, an equilibrium of their own, and that they tend, as they multiply, to become more stable, namely, by separating out incompatibilities, dominant and recessive potential unit characters, and becoming the vehicle of either the one or the other are there differential divisions during the development of the germ-cells which lead to there being two camps of gametes which we may briefly describe as pure potential dominance and pure potential recessives is this not a possible expression of a struggle between the hereditary items and in line with weissman's theory of germinal selection End quote. Quote, a more precise suggestion says t h morgan to which it seems too soon to attach great significance is the fascinating hypothesis that the segregation occurs during the maturation division. If we assume that the chromosomes are the vehicles of the hereditary qualities, which seems highly probable, if we assume further that a particular potential unit character is contained in each germ cell in one chromosome and not in others, which seems a difficult assumption, then it is possible that Sutton may be correct in his suggestion that the segregation of gametes into two sets Occurs in the course of the maturation division. End quote. A great deal of work confirming Mendel's experiences has been done both with plants and animals in laboratories in many countries, with the result that, although there are some difficulties and not a few discrepancies, quote, the truth of the law, as Batson says, is now established for a large number of cases of most dissimilar character. End quote. On the other hand, there has been much experimentation in which the results do not harmonize with the Mendeleian results. Thompson says, quote, There seems at present no reason to believe that the Mendeleian formula has more than a limited application, though it is, of course, possible that apparent exceptions may eventually turn out to be less formidable than they seem. There seems no reason why there should not be several formulae of inheritance, each applicable to particular sets of cases, e.g., to cases where blending does occur into cases where it never occurs as the method of experiment is obviously the surest line of progress the more it is prosecuted the sooner will the mists surrounding heredity disappear but progress cannot be secured by ignoring difficult cases or by straining the formula in the eager desire to universalize it end quote extensive theoretical and practical applications of mendel's law to problems of biology have been made for the technical discussion of mendel's law in connection with persistence in evolution and in relation to definite variations reference must be made to some of the detailed studies on mendelism the following illustrations from thompson and from punnett will show its value to practical breeders some kinds of wheat are very susceptible to the fungoid disease known as rust others are immune the quality of immunity to rust is recessive to the quality of predisposition to rust when an immune and a non-immune strain are crossed together the resulting hybrids are all susceptible to rust on self-fertilization such hybrids produce seed from which appear dominant rusts and recessive immune plants in the expected ratio of three to one from this simple experiment the phrase resistance to disease has acquired a more precise significance and the wide field of research here opened up in this connection promises results of the utmost practical as well as theoretical importance the new science of heredity has much to teach the practical man says Punnett. let us suppose that he has two varieties each possessing a desirable character and that he wishes to combine these characters in a third form he must not be disappointed if he makes his cross and finds that none of the hybrids approach the ideal which he has set before himself. For if he raises a further generation, he will obtain the thing which he desires. He may, for example, possess tall green-seeded and dwarf yellow-seeded peas, and may wish to raise a strain of green dwarfs. He makes his cross, and nothing but tall yellows result. At first sight he would appear to be further than ever from his end, for the hybrids differ more from the plant at which he is aiming than did either of the original parents. Nevertheless, if he sow the seeds of these hybrids, he may look forward with confidence to the appearance of the dwarf green, and owing to the recessive nature of both greenness and dwarfness, he can be certain that for further generations the dwarf greens thus produce will come true to type. The green dwarfs are all fixed as soon as they appear, and will throw neither tails nor yellows the less the hybrid resembles the form at which the breeder aims the more likely is that form to breed true when it appears in the next generation in the years since nineteen hundred there has been deep interest in the microscopic study of germ cells in the search for the mechanism of heredity much observation and experimentation has been done and there has been a rapid advance in knowledge but so intricate are the questions involved that investigation is most difficult and only a start at the problems has been made. In an address before the American Association for the Advancement of Science in December 1907, E.G. Conklin well summarizes the arguments in support of the two general views under which opinions concerning the material bearers of inheritance may be said to be grouped, namely, the view that the chromosomes of the germ cell are the bearers of heredity, and the view that inheritance may take place through the cytoplasm of the germ cells. A few of the less technical paragraphs of this paper are as follows. In practically all theories of heredity, it is assumed that there is a specific inheritance material distinct from the general protoplasm, whose function is the transmission of hereditary properties from generation to generation, and whose characteristics, as compared with the general protoplasm, are greater stability independence and continuity this is the idioplasm of negli the germplasm of Weismann. it is further assumed that this germplasm is itself composed of ultra microscopical units which are capable of undergoing transformation during the course of development into the structures of the adult however necessary such units may be for a complete philosophical explanation of development it must be confessed that at present they constitute a purely hypothetical system which may or may not correspond to reality. We know that germ cells are exceedingly complex, that they contain many visible units such as chromosomes, chromomeres, and microsomes, and that with every great improvement in the microscope and in microscopical technique, other structures are made visible which were invisible before, and whether the hypothetical units just named are present or not, seems to be a matter of no great importance, seeing that, so far as the analysis of the microscope is able to go, there are differentiated units which are combined into a system. In short, there is organization. On the other hand, the evidence in favor of an inheritance material, which is distinct from the general protoplasm of the germ and whose function is the reproduction of hereditary characters, is not convincing all the living substance of the egg cell is converted into the mature organism that there is a species plasm or an individual plasm which is continuous from generation to generation and from which all the qualities of the mature organism are differentiated is almost a certainty but there is no satisfactory evidence that this substance is distinct from the general protoplasm of the young germ cells Differentiation, and hence heredity, consists in the main in the appearance of unlike substances in protoplasm and their localization in definite regions or cells. Unfortunately, we do not know many of the steps by which different substances appear within protoplasm, but in all cases which have been carefully studied, one significant fact appears, vis the importance of the interaction of the nucleus and cytoplasm. In many cases, various substances have been seen to come out of the nucleus and to mingle with the cytoplasm, while the nucleus in turn absorbs substances from the cytoplasm. It is known that constructive metabolism, differentiation, and regeneration never occur in the absence of a nucleus. Turning now to the differentiations of the fertilized egg cell, we find that different substances appear in the egg cell and become localized in different regions of the egg or embryo. It is known that there is an active interchange of nuclear and cytoplasmic substances. In the long growth period of the egg, the nucleus grows enormously, evidently at the expense of substances received from the cell body. On the other hand, it is well established that substances issue from the nucleus into the cell body and mingle with the cytoplasm during this stage. Finally, we may conclude that the nucleus plays a less important role in the localization of different substances than in the formation of those substances. Nevertheless, in differentiation, as well as in metabolism, there is every reason to believe that the entire cell is a physiological unit. Neither the nucleus nor the cytoplasm can exist long independently of the other. Differentiations are dependent upon the interaction of these two parts of the cell the entire germ cell and not merely the nucleus or cytoplasm is transformed into the embryo or larva and it therefore seems necessary to conclude that both nucleus and cytoplasm are involved in the mechanism of heredity it may be considered as definitely settled that the early development of animals is of purely maternal type and that it is only after the broad outlines of development and the general type of differentiation have been established that the influence of the spermatozoan begins to make itself felt, and it is equally certain that this type of differentiation is predetermined in the cytoplasm of the mature egg cell rather than in the egg nucleus. On the other hand, there is no doubt that the differentiations of the egg cytoplasm have arisen, in the main, during the ovarian history of the egg, and as a result of the interaction of nucleus and cytoplasm. But the fact remains that at the time of fertilization the hereditary potencies of the two germ cells are not equal all the early development including the polarities symmetry type of cleavage and the relative positions and proportions of future organs being predetermined in the cytoplasm of the egg cell while only the differentiations of later development are influenced by the sperm in short, the egg cytoplasm fixes the type of development and the sperm and egg nuclei supply only the details. This conclusion is not a refutation of the nuclear inheritance theory, but it is a profound modification of it. At once, it destroys the argument that since there is equality of inheritance from both parents, there must be equivalence of inheritance material in egg and sperm. So far as those characteristics are concerned which appear late in development, it is highly probable that there is equality of inheritance from both parents but in the early and main features of development hereditary traits as well as material substance are derived chiefly from the mother in the light of the conclusion that only the later and more detailed differentiations are influenced by the sperm it follows that experimental work which aims to modify the fundamental features of an organism must be directed to the ovarian egg rather than to the sperm or to the developing embryo in conclusion the following paragraphs from e b wilson's the cell and development and inheritance will indicate the present state of the cytological study of inheritance problems and the outlook for the future we have now arrived he says at the farthest outpost of cell research and here we find ourselves confronted with the same unsolved problems before which the investigators of evolution have made a halt for we must now inquire what is the guiding principle of embryological development that correlates its complex phenomena and directs them to a definite end. However we conceive the special mechanism of development, we cannot escape the conclusion that the power behind it is involved in the structure of the germplasm inherited from foregoing generations. What is the nature of this structure and how has it been acquired? To the first of these questions we have as yet no certain answer. The second question is merely the general problem of evolution stated from the standpoint of the cell theory. The first question raises once more the old puzzle of preformation or epigenesis. The pangen hypothesis of de Vries and Weissmann recognizes the fact that development is epigenetic in its external features, but, like Darwin's hypothesis of pangenesis, it is, at bottom, a theory of preformation and Weizmann expresses the conviction that it is an impossibility the truth is that an explanation of development is at present beyond our reach the controversy between preformation and epigenesis has now arrived at a stage where it has little meaning apart from the general problems of physical causality what we know is that a specific kind of living substance derived from the parent tends to run through a specific cycle of changes during which it transforms itself into a body like that of which it formed a part and we are able to study with greater or less precision the mechanism by which that transformation is effected and the conditions under which it takes place but despite all our theories we no more know how the organization of the germ cell involves the properties of the adult body than we know how the properties of hydrogen and oxygen involve those of water so long as the chemist and physicist are unable to solve so simple a problem of physical causality as this, the embryologist may well be content to reserve his judgment on a problem a hundredfold more complex. The second question regarding the historical origin of the idioplasm brings us to the side of the evolutionists. The idioplasm of every species has been derived, as we must believe, by the modification of a pre-existing idioplasm through variation and the survival of the fittest whether these variations first arise in the idioplasm of the germ cells as weissman maintains or whether they may arise in the body cells and then be reflected back upon the idioplasm is a question to which the study of the cell has thus far given no certain answer whatever position we take on this question the same difficulty is encountered namely the origin of that coordinated fitness, that power of active adjustment between internal and external relations, which, as so many eminent biological thinkers have insisted, overshadows every manifestation of life. The nature and origin of this power is the fundamental problem of biology. It may be true, as Schwan himself urged, that the adaptive power of living beings differs in degree only, not in kind, from that of unorganized bodies it is true that we may trace in organic nature long and finely graduated series leading upward from the lower to the higher forms and we must believe that the wonderful adaptive manifestations of the more complex forms have been derived from simpler conditions through the progressive operation of natural causes but when all these admissions are made and when the conserving action of natural selection is in the fullest degree recognized we cannot close our eyes to two facts first that we are utterly ignorant of the manner in which the idioplasm of the germ cell can so respond to the influence of the environment as to call forth an adaptive variation and second that the study of the cell has on the whole seemed to widen rather than to narrow the enormous gap that separates even the lowest forms of life from the inorganic world I am well aware that, to many, such a conclusion may appear reactionary or even to involve a renunciation of what has been regarded as the ultimate aim of biology. In reply to such criticism, I can only express my conviction that the magnitude of the problem of development, whether ontogenetic or phylogenetic, has been underestimated, and that the progress of science is retarded rather than advanced by a premature attack upon its ultimate problems yet the splendid achievements of cell research in the past twenty years stand as the promise of its possibilities for the future and we need set no limit to its advance to schleiden and schwann the present standpoint of the cell theory might well have seemed unattainable we cannot foretell its future triumphs nor can we doubt that the way has already been opened to better understanding of inheritance and development end of section 25 recording by warren cotty gurnee illinois